This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. When you think of someone being nosy, do you think of them putting themselves into situations that they don't belong, or perhaps they have a particularly good ability to distinguish smells? Dogs can smell so much better than humans, so why not a dog detective? And Louisa Bennett has done just that with her book, The Nosy Detectives. Welcome, Louisa. Oh, thank you for having me here. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting to you. <laughs> Monty is a golden retriever with, as a quote, big round eyes, the colour of gingerbread, filled with unbridled devotion. To whom? Well, he is a uh, adopted golden retriever and he belongs to um, a very, very young uh, police officer called Rose Sidebottom who has very recently decided that she's going to be setting up her own detective agency, which she does. And her partner for this uh, new journey is the dog and the dog is called Monty. And she's secretly thought for a while now that Monty seems to be rather good at solving <laughs> crimes. She's not quite sure how the dog does it, but somehow he does find the criminal. And he does this particularly through his network of doggy friends, but also through his astounding sense of smell. Rose was the policewoman and worked with DCI Craig Leach. And a true gentleman, D.I. Varma, and there was also D.I. Dave Pearl. Monty didn't like him. No, well, Monty is actually a very affectionate dog, but there are, if any, if there are any humans, as he calls them, and part of this book is actually narrated from the dog's point of view, which is where the humour comes into it. <laughs> Basically, D.I. Pearl has had it, has it in for Rose right from the beginning and does everything he can to belittle her, to, you know, make her life difficult. So uh, if Monty had his way, he would cock his leg and pee on, <laughs> on D.I. Pearl's rather nice shiny shoes. But because he's a good dog, he doesn't actually do that and he refrains from it. But, you know, if you read the book, you'll find that Pearl really isn't a very pleasant character He probably deserves it. Yes, yes. You know, he wants to get Monty put down. I know. Oh, what a horrible nasty. man. <laughs> So Rose has left the police force and set up her own practice with Monty, Ollie, a 17-year-old computer geek, and Betty. Yes, well, Betty, so there are, uh, I'll explain how it's how, how sort of the, the, the book works. So you have um, Rose, who is the, uh, the human narrator, and then you have the dog and you're inside his head. And he has a number of allies who he works with. And one of them is a rat called Betty Blabble. And she is like a mother figure. She mothers him. And she also leads him astray a few times because she's very adventurous and she's a little bit feisty. Um, and she, I, funnily enough, of all the emails I get about the Monty Dog Detective series, Betty Blabble, apart from Monty, is the second favourite character. Because um, she's got quite a little reckless personality <laughs> um, and she adds a lot of fun to the story. She does. Her first case, this is Rose's first case, involves a young man she knows and Ollie knew him from school. So we're going to hear a little bit from the nosy detective. And this is Ollie telling about. The very first case that they've been invited to solve is a cold case and it's about a fire that killed 
two people and the son the surviving son was the was basically found outside the farmhouse that that burnt down and he has become this is finn he has become the police's main suspect but rose and monty and ollie actually think that it's unlikely that um, a boy that age could have done it so this is the voice of ollie and he and he's talking about finn and he says at first i thought no way he'd done it he was a cool kid back then but he wasn't a dick about it he played electric guitar pretty amazing for a kid that age after the fire he was different he wouldn't speak i mean not a word stopped playing guitar got into fights he was one angry dude i guess i'd be angry if my parents died and I was blamed for it. So he's been living with his grandmother, Phyllis O'Brien, and I like the description of her. Despite the granny-esque beige fleece, green tweed skirt and flat lace-up shoes, she had a build of a professional wrestler and the voice of a town crier. (laughs) Yes, she's one formidable woman. Phyllis is really quite scary and so is her cat. (laughs) But the cat actually plays a very important role and a positive role as well, so I won't try and do too many spoilers. Of course, the police, especially um, Craig Leach, wants to charge Finn for the arson which killed his parents. But he was dog-sitting Monty when he was attacked and went into a coma. And there is an attachment or comfort between Monty and Flynn. Flynn used to have a pup, black and white collie. Yeah, so the role that Monty plays in this book, which I would add, you know, this sounds a bit um, sort of like a, a sort of a mad story, which it is, but it's an adult book, but it's also read by young adults and any kids who, you know, are happy to read Harry Potter. And the thing about Monty is that, you know, he is very capable at solving crime and he can find this dog through scent. And so he finds this dog, Panda, who is the, the second surviving witness. And it's through the dog that they actually help to find the person who really did commit the crime. And using wee males. Oh, yes. And howl of thoughts. Wee males are very important. <laughs> Have you ever wondered why your dog keeps going up to lampposts and, you know, hedges and sniffing and then pausing as if they're considering what, what this is all about and then leaving their own wee mail while they're leaving messages for other dogs and they're picking up messages. And, of course, howlathons is when they need to do it over a much bigger distance. So when you're talking one town to another or one village to another, that's when they embark on the howlathon. And, of course, two dog noses are better than one. And there's a whole series of culprits that could be guilty. There's Sasha Bassing who wanted to buy the toy farm and there's Mervyn, the next door neighbour who wanted to sell. There's the vicar who was having an affair and one of Flynn's friends could have been known as a child arsonist. But there was a special talent Rose had for knowing if they were telling lies. Yeah, so Rose has her own particular talent and that is that she gets this feeling of pins and needles when somebody lies to her. And it's sometimes difficult for her to work out what exactly they're lying about, but she knows when they're fabricating and that sort of helps her to isolate who, which of the suspects is, is possibly uh, the person who deliberately murdered 
Marie and Tony Toyne. Well, we're talking detective skills, but there's, when it comes to relationships, the animals can explain it more humorously. Rose is rather taken by Tucker Hughes, the fireman, and it's explained to Monty by the rat, <laughs> Betty, <laughs> that, they, that there may be humping involved. <laughs> but then there's the vet, Malcolm Kerr. Ah, yes. Well, in, in, in co- and this is a cosy mystery, so, um, you know, so you're guaranteed a happy ending with the story. But there is um, a love interest and it's the rather shy and bumbling vet who's always had a bit of a thing for Rose but has never quite managed to get around to, you know, sort of get it, saying anything to her. And this book is deliberately set on and around Valentine's Day. So he's trying to build up to actually asking her out and fails miserably yeah. most of the time. But I won't explain um, no, what, it what, goes, hap- no. what happens. The previous books explain other cases that Rose and Monty have worked on and also how she was attacked by a crazed killer wielding an axe and how the gang got together. But we don't need to know that for this book. But there is quite an insight into dogs. Yeah, well, I, look, and no surprise to everybody, I have two golden retrievers, and Monty is a golden retriever, and I've been very involved in training golden retrievers as well. And so, um, you know, I've, I've watched some of the things they do, and the inspiration for this book was a retriever that sadly recently passed away, but his name was Pickles, um, and he's actually on the front cover of this mm. copy of, of The Nosy Detectives. Um, but he could do amazing things, like he would undo door he could undo doors he could you know as long as there was a latch he would could get out of it he knew his way around town frequently I'd find him at the pub propping up the bar (laughs) not actually drinking but usually looking rather pleadingly at people who had burgers so he was quite a character in the in the place I lived in and uh, very well known and very well loved and so you know imagining uh, what goes on inside a dog's head and extrapolating it a little bit further mm. was a great deal of fun and writing these books I find is quite a is a very cathartic process because I'm ch- sort of chuckling away to myself as I'm actually writing <laughs> well I've been speaking with Louisa Bennett about her book The Nosy Detectives one of a series but she's been in this program before with another set of uh, detective stories at known as L.A. Larkin So we're going to talk to Louisa perhaps at the end of the program about that. Well, we'll also be talking with my guest about that as well at the end. We might be able to get a bit of a conversation going because I've also got a murder mystery writer uh, with me, but murder and Melbourne, they seem to go hand in hand as if they were made for each other. And Hugh McGinley takes advantage of that notion in his latest Catherine Kint murder mystery, Silks. So, Hugh, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. A somewhat graphic death to open this story. The crack was audible above the backing music. Everyone heard it just as they saw the acrobat's sudden stop. The crowd gasped as one while the first acrobat's tissue was stretched at a 40 degree angle held taut by her hand. This newly fallen acrobat entwined in black ribbon hung limply. Her feet were a metre from the ground. Her head was caught in the silk at an angle impossible for survival. 
I'm very good at that, David. Could you narrate? I I think I would write more books if you just stood behind me and narrated as I typed. Narrated as as you went. But the importance of a a good death, how do you come up with them? I I was about 200 metres from 3CR in Collingwood a few years ago, a few years ago, probably 20 years ago, when I first saw Aerial Silks. And this acrobat tumbled from Collingwood Town Hall's roof and everyone, you know, it was Melbourne. Everyone was so cool and everyone just went, Ugh. but I was gobsmacked. Yeah. I couldn't believe that it was legal. I couldn't believe that it had happened. I couldn't believe they were safe. And I tucked it away in the folds of my, um, you know, all too full brain until I was writing this book about circus. And I knew that that had to, had to inform the death. Well, the person that has passed away here is Silver. That's her stage name. And we've got some complications now arising because she's part of a circus troupe. Mm. Now, we've got a dynamic taking place in this uh, troupe. Virginia, the manager, Harley, um, Kiara, uh, all part of this troupe. So their personalities and their um, relative interests in uh, this circus act. Circus is... I'm not a circus performer. I never have been. Uh, But I've been friends with some circus performers and I've worked in teams in in other areas. I've been a musician for a long time. I've been in bands. I've been been around tight-knit working groups. Well, uh, how tight-knit are they actually? Yeah, there's an agenda behind you. I see what happens when they go toxic. And I wanted to explore this and play with this in this new book. But there's a curious sort of uh, undercurrent here as well. Do you compromise the working team regardless of the dynamic there in terms of the personalities? What's the tension here? One of the things that I wanted to explore is the great taboos of arts and entertainment, which is the, the show must go on. And, and would, you, would someone ever, how far will you go working with someone you can't trust? How far you would go working with people you loathe yep. in, order, in order to uphold the show or uphold the, the music or uphold the team, the work, whatever it is. Some people do it for profit. Some people do it for big buildings. Some people do it for political power. Yeah. But what happens? But there's a greater thing there, the, the art, the, the, the music or the performance. Something bigger than all of us. Yeah. And you, you see it happen in, you know, in, in any kind of team where someone puts their own needs or their own desires or their own resentments ahead of that bigger Ideal. Yeah. So we've got Harley, the redhead director. Would she compromise her own show? Virginia's the manager. There's all people. Everyone's there with in, something. In any team, you need to trust. Yeah. But I was fascinated by just how essential that trust is when it comes to circus. One, one of my best friends is a circus performer, and I've seen him standing on someone's shoulders while someone else is standing on his shoulders. And I've been fascinated about that kind of intimacy I mean, that's about as intimate as you can get, that lifting up, that, that human pyramid without, without any sexual tension. But you, it's not just I rely on you or the job's not going to get done. It's I rely on you or I'm going to break my neck. But here's the other go. Did Silver succumb to an accident or was she killed? So this uncertainty is there as well because Silver might have compromised her own performance here. Yeah. But before we get on to that, 
We've got another character in here, Melbourne. I love this. Some Melbourne winter nights, the city itself screams, don't go out. The wind howls. I am the furious wrath of the south. I will hurt you. I will wither your attempts to smile through it. There is no good time here. No rock and roll will keep you warm. You're done. Stay home. Cover. Show me you are afraid. So Melbourne is a character in this story. It's the nicest compliment I've had in uh, it's I've been working on this series for 15 years and when my second book Pachyderm came out that was that was part of it just Melbourne as a character having having this place alive that contributes to the story almost as much as the bumbling idiots who are my imaginary friends. But let's go a step further. Sydney Road Brunswick. I think there's something about that location as well because this is where it's set um and we get to uh women and uh how well uh, insecure is or how dangerous it is uh on melbourne streets at times Mm -hmm. um and this gets us well we should introduce catherine before we get on to that your milliner come detective Yes, Catherine Kint is a hard-living milliner who lives in Brunswick and solves crimes in her spare time. But here's the interesting thing, because at one point she's interviewing somebody and that somebody just happens to be reading a book by Kerry Greenwood. Now, why have you done that, good sir? A nod to the master, of course. Um, I actually hadn't read Kerry Greenwood until I'd been working on this series for a long time. And it was only when... um, one of my books came out and Catherine was referred to as a poor knockoff of Franny Fisher that I thought, oh, I really should, I should go and read uh, some Kerry Greenwood. And I did. And I can guarantee listeners, uh, Catherine and Franny, while they would get along, are very different people. But it, it's a sort of, I uh, dips me lid yeah. to, the, to the master, to, to somebody who um, has done so much for yeah. crime fiction in this country and on this planet. And, and those sorts of notions and ideas. So the, the novel itself and the series sort of fits into that genre comfortably well. And it's, it's that recognition of that whole um, genre and those that have contributed to it. So I like that. But the other character I like, so there's, there's Catherine, and she has an offsider, Boris Shokhovskoy. I hopefully I got yep, that. You've done brilliantly. <laughs> but here we go. I love Boris because Boris is in a bit of a bind. Boris is a barman to begin with. But Boris and his relationship with women. And this gets me back to Brunswick as well because Boris doesn't really know how to, well, uh, is awkward would that be I, the I learned a cool word yesterday I've got I've got yep. um, I was driving some teenagers to a movie and they told me there's this word riz which me it comes from charisma I found out later that's the etymology and if you've got riz then it's really easy to attract sexual partners or smooching partners uh, Boris has no riz but he never will have riz but Boris has got relationships I mean there's his relationship with Catherine which is in fact is quite blunt they're they're able to tell each other where to get off basically yeah, yeah. And, and their failings each other's failings but it's not sexual it's uh, not yeah no. but then Boris picks up Jolene and when I say pick up what I mean is um, he sees her walking in Melbourne weather um, and basically then um, offers her a lift. But you've got a problem here. How do you do a good deed for a woman today? Boris will always do what he thinks is right, even when it's unfashionable. Mm. There is so much about Boris that is unfashionable, but he is, at his heart, 
just a good person. He's a Bilbo Baggins for a modern age. Mm. Um, this book, uh, getting back to Melbourne, this book is set in a bitter Melbourne winter. All of my books have a certain, the uh, a bit of a a love letter to the places that I love. I, I love Melbourne. Three of my books have been set in Melbourne. But any Victorian who has lived through a Melbourne winter knows that that's, that's the hard part of the relationship. That's when you're thinking, goodness me, it could, why, why is it so hard to love this place? And why are there so many um, people screaming at me about wearing the wrong football jumper? It's really <laughs> rough. But Boris picks up Jolene because there is torrential rain. And even though you're not supposed to speak to people you're not supposed to talk to strangers he sees someone that he can help but it's not just strangers it's women as well and he says to her you know look there's a stick over there you can bring it into the car and sit in the back seat and club me over the head if you want i'm just trying to do a good deed but here we go getting back to brunswick because brunswick has been where people or women have been in danger and i'm going to pick up on that a little bit more as well but then boris finds himself helping kiara who is one of the troop as well. Mm. Boris is now very confused. He's never had so many um, relationships with women running consecutively. Yeah, this is a really big story for Boris. And he. this is a story where no one has a clean getaway. You know, my last book, Body Surfing, was utter fun at a beach and everyone was having a good time when they weren't being you know, chased or stabbed. Um this book is, it's a sad tale, but, and the only consolation is that everyone has lived as truly to their values as possible by the end, but everyone is thinking, I wish that hadn't happened, all of it. Now, here we get to an interesting point, because um, Boris is trying to do the, the right thing. He's, well, uh, Catherine's right-hand man, he is in physical danger himself, and the situation arises where he could be pursued. He's looking over his shoulder. He's wondering, you know, if the person down the street could be a suspect. Can I get home safely? Can I get to the railway station safely? Am I going to get mugged in the street? Mm. And this is where it all comes together with the women and Brunswick because at this point he says, uh, talking to himself, check yourself, check yourself. Shakovsky, he muttered. He'd done that deliberately. And he knew women felt this fear all the time. This was a bad day for him, but for most women, this was a fact of the night. He muttered a small apology on behalf of all his gender, of all his gender, and walked on. And there you have it, picking up on what women have to go through daily. Yeah. Um, and and Boris now basically understands. Or what it is to walk down yeah. the street with fear. Yeah, that empathy. Yeah, uh, is all, there all the things that women have to do when they walk alone, like having your keys in your, in your hands, uh, calling a friend, all the things, stuff that I never will have to do because I'm a six-foot bloke with a deep voice and a beard. I couldn't fight my way out of a wet paper bag. But I'm just big enough for most people to say, not going to pick on him. Yeah. And, well, men in general don't have to no. worry as much um, in, in that regard. So, And it's something we just don't give a second thought to. No, yeah. but yeah. we possibly should because <laughs> the more conversations we have about this, maybe the more aware, the more violent of our gender will be that's how unacceptable some behaviours of our gender are. Yeah, well, how easily it is for our behaviour to be misunderstood too in terms of, or misinterpreted in terms of where we are. 
Um, okay, but now um, we have an interesting use of mobile phones in here. So everyone, it seems, is looking for, and this is members of the, the troupe, the acting troupe. There's Catherine and uh, Boris, who've actually broken into uh, Silver's home. And uh, also, there are um, there's Silver's father, Robert Barwick, and Silver's actual real name is Mia. They're all looking for a phone. Now, you do something interesting here because we've got to break into the phone and we find text messages. What's going on here? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> You'd have to well, read it. You, but the, the phone is, of course, a device. Uh, it becomes uh, an unreliable witness. How much, how much information can it give? How much do you interpret? Because it's an interesting use of phones and technology because in breaking in, you, you can't guarantee that you're going to get all the message. There's half a message there. Everything you need and ever could need is in the gut and the message breaks off. And so everyone's going around, well, what's the gut? Yeah. The GA. And so that adds a whole other dimension and the reader is then thinking, What's that thread? Is there a clue there? Does it fit with anything else I've read before? And so we're left trying to find um, what it is that might, what the message might I, be. I think any good murder mystery has to include the reader as a detective. And that's what I hope I've achieved in this. But certainly when I'm, say, watching Only Murders in the Building, every little detail I'm thinking, where are you taking me? Should I be noticing this? Am I noticing this for a reason? Is that a clue? Is that a red herring? But also then, Robert Barwick, bit of a sort of, well, I won't say cat, he's a failed businessman, basically. So he's got an agenda, which doesn't necessarily mean he's interested in his daughter's welfare. Uh Possibly, possibly, possibly not. Possibly not. <laughs> so what, what is his motivation in wanting answers is there as well. And then, just to add another dimension, we've got Dr Harmison. He's a bit of a physiotherapist, uh, practices acupuncture, and herbal teas. Now, what's in these herbal teas? <laughs> who knows, who knows? <laughs> just another line of investigation Catherine goes to see the same practitioner that was working on the deceased. It's a, a, another voice that can shed some light on who was Silver, what were they going through, and how did this disaster what, happen? What did Silver uh, take in, basically? So the, the toxicology reports come back. Mm. So could something have been put into what she was ingesting? Did she do it herself? Was it an accident? Was it murder? We are left with all of these questions and a range of people and poor Boris trying to work out his um, his uh, modus operandi there with, with women. So do you find this uh, a problem, uh, Louise, in terms of putting together a murder mystery, all of the various facets that have to be... Well, Juggled simultaneously? How serious are they as plotters and planners? Ah, oh, well, I mean, I write both as L.A. Larkin and as Louisa Bennett, and L.A. Larkin is crime thriller, so it's completely different. I absolutely agree that, it, you know, an author should create a story in which the, the readers, if, if they're really paying attention, there is a possibility they can work out who the, the perpetrator is of the crimes. Mm. Um, are, 
I used to be a pantser, so I used to sort of start off with ideas of a story and then just let the inspiration go. But when you have deadlines, you know, you have to deliver on a certain time. And, like, the, the, the rollover is really fast because um, I have two publishers. Mm. And so they the, sometimes their deadlines compete. Oh, and so I'm now a full plotter. I don't know about you, but I'm... Everything is plotted. I'm half and half. Yeah. I, I have vague plot lines. I have characters that misbehave. It's <laughs> we love characters that <laughs> misbehave. Yeah. Well, I was speaking with Louisa Bennett about her books or in the series The Nosy Detectives in the and, Monty series. And I was talking with Hugh McGinley about another instalment of the Catherine Kint mystery called Silks, which is the fourth one. And they're both from Clandestine Press. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.